Hey, welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. My name is Conrad Weaver, and I'm your host for the program. And Happy New Year to everybody. Glad you are able to join us. And if you are uh, watching us, uh, please let us know where you're from. I'd love to uh, see that in the chat. And also let us know what kind of agency you're a part of if you're a first responder. And if you're not a first responder, let us know uh, what brought you to the program tonight? What interested you in this program? And uh, we're going to introduce our guest in just a minute. But first, I just want to kind of give you a little bit of a background as to what this program is all about. So I'm a film producer and director of the PTSD 911 documentary that's in production right now. We are still in production. I will tell you a little bit more about that in just a second. But uh, uh, that this program tonight is sponsored by the film. It's a, it's a program that we decided to start and to bring the community together to as a resource for first responders and those who support first responders. I am not a first responder myself, so full disclosure, I'm a filmmaker, but I have many, many friends all across the country and even now around the world who are first responders. And I'm a huge advocate for those who take care of our communities. I think that we should do everything in our power possible to take care of our first responders who take care of us. And so uh, it is my goal uh, to produce a film that uh, tells that story. And for this program tonight, it's my goal to to bring resources, to bring people who are, who have experienced many things that uh, we're going to talk about, uh, trauma and, and PTSD and all those things, but also who are experts at helping others to, uh, to work through those traumas. You know, uh, I encourage you, if you have not checked out our website, I encourage you to go over to ptsd911movie.com uh, sometime when you get a moment. And uh, you can check out our our trailer for the film, which is right here. There's uh, other resources there. You can uh, uh, you can actually make a donation, which uh, we'd love to have uh, more your support. And uh, there's also some other resources there on our website where uh, check it out, ptsd911movie.com and uh, check out all the resources there. Uh, we also have, uh, we're on all the social sites. If you are on social media, you can find us at PTSD911movie. And we're, we're now also on TikTok. Yes, I posted my first TikTok video yesterday. So if you are on TikTok, join me there. I'd love to see you and like it and share it and all that fun stuff. So uh, my son convinced me to jump on the TikTok. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, but, you know, I want to talk a little bit about the film. And I, I decided that we have we have three goals for the film. Three things we want to accomplish with this movie. The first is to raise awareness. We know that the general public doesn't under, really understand what first responders do and the traumas that they carry. And through this film, we want to be able to, to raise that awareness. The second thing we want to do, and I think is really important to smash the stigma of asking for help, that make it okay to not be okay and to raise your hand and say, hey, I need help. I need someone to talk to about the stuff I'm dealing with. And the third thing we want to do, and probably the hardest thing, is to inspire change in agencies. And, you know, big ships take a long time to turn, but we want to inspire change. We want to highlight those agencies that are doing things well. Uh, they're not perfect. No one's perfect, but they're doing things well, better than most. And we're going to highlight those agencies and bring them to to this film. And hopefully some chief someplace will see this film and say, you know what, we need to implement those things into our agency to begin making a difference in our first responder communities. And so PTSD911movie.com is the website. And tonight we are here with PTSD911 Presents. And so I'm so happy that you are here. And I'm also very happy that we have a very special guest who has joined us tonight all the way from Florida, sunny Florida. We have Dan Jarvis, who is the president and founder of 220. He is, Dan is a U.S. Army Sergeant First Class, retired. He's a deputy sheriff, retired from that. And he's a former U.S. Army Drill Sergeant. I hope he doesn't uh, do some shouting tonight. Um, he's also the, the developer of the 220 Resiliency Coaching Program, the co-developer of the Trauma Resiliency uh, a Protocol, and the developer of the Emotions Management Process. And he has a Master's of Public Administration from Central Michigan University. Dan Jarvis, welcome to PTSD 911 Presents. Mr. Weaver, appreciate the invitation to speak to your audience. Well, it's so good to have you here. You know, for uh, as we talked a little bit before the show started, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the world. And just today I read that we've already had four law enforcement suicides this year already. It's only the 5th of January. We've already had four 
registered that we know of law enforcement suicides. What's going on in our community that in our law enforcement, in our first responders, that's causing that kind of um, reaction from folks? I think one of the biggest thing is there is a stigma attached to asking for help and crushing the stigma is so necessary. Uh, what we're expecting the men and women who put that uniform on to do is beyond the pale when it comes to the, your average person couldn't comprehend. Yeah, I was a deputy sheriff here in Florida for right around seven years. And you see stuff day in and day out, day in and day out. You know, you might go a whole week without anything significant happening. And then all of a sudden you might have a triple homicide and or you might have to do CPR on a two year old child and, and you're helpless to do anything to help that individual. Or you're getting shot at. Or people are being ambushed, you know, pretty regularly. Mm. Um, yeah, I've those. seen that this past year. That was a huge thing. People just, in fact, I saw one recently where uh, a law enforcement officer was sleeping off duty in their car, and somebody came up and just shot him in the head. Yeah, that's that, that's a horrendous thing. It's also a, a big safety factor that for the officer to do anything like that. Um, but when you when you work the hours that these folks work you know, the job is extremely taxing and fatiguing. Mm -hmm. um, but the biggest thing is the, the stigma that's attached to asking for help because what ends up happening is if, if the deputy or the police officer um, asks for help, you know, the belief is they're going to get taken off the road. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they might get sidelined. I worked with a, a deputy sheriff here in central Florida and he was scared to death that he wasn't going to be able to get back in uniform. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's on light duty and, you know, he's fine now, but, you know, that's that's a reality. So many of them won't even ask for help. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's you know, it's, it's culture. It's cop culture. You know, it's you know, it's the same thing in the military. Suck it up, mm -hmm. rub some dirt on it. You know, mm -hmm. you, you're going to be fine. Just, you know, get past it. But the reality is it, it, it's the biggest misunderstanding of what trauma actually is. Um, you know, if, if you're looking at a lot of the new research, post-traumatic stress is not a psychological disorder. It's a neurological disorder. It's where the limbic system in the brain literally hijacks um, the process. So in other words, you know, you're, you're, I'll use a car metaphor. You're, you're idling at a thousand RPMs. That's mm. normal brain function. All of a sudden a traumatic event occurs and you slam on the accelerator and it go up to 7,500 RPMs. And then you never come off the gas pedal. Mm. That's all PTS is, is that, that, that part of the brain where the amygdala is just firing it's, and it's firing 24 seven. You know, so those emotions are continually connected to that, that amygdala, which is why you have those flashbacks, the intrusive thoughts. It's just easy, quick access. It's kind of like what I else call it, the thumb drive. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you don't process the emotions appropriately, i.e. sleeping, proper mm -hmm. sleep hygiene or not self-medicating, because, you know, I knew a lot of, of law enforcement officers, they get off work and they'd open mm -hmm. up the bottle just to sleep. Mm -hmm. you know, and those are doing things that are preventing the REM sleep. And then you get some that are prescribed medications and many of the medications are REM sleep blockers. Yeah. I hate to tell you, but you got to hit REM sleep to process those emotions. Right. You know, and then the culture at the top, some agencies I've, I've like in Florida, we're lucky. Um, you have to change the culture at the top of the organization. Mm -hmm. In other words, you got to be understanding that, you know, like uh, uh, the term you use when you outsource trauma, you know, you have to, you got to be able to let these guys, girls decompress. Mm -hmm. um, but if they're bottling it up and not wanting to talk about it, they might be dealing with it for, for a decade or longer. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the emotional temperature of the, of the country um, is causing people to, to, to take actions against law enforcement. Uh, and that's got to change the, right. and, and that comes from the straight to the top of our leadership in politics. Doesn't matter which political party you're in. If you're going to, you know, foment a movement that goes against law enforcement, you know, it's going to have an effect on the local communities, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, people will start chasing those emotions mm -hmm. and, you know, and ends up very poorly. Yeah. Life. I want to get into and in a little bit into some of the solutions that you've come up with to help with these kind of mitigate some of these issues, but I want to first for our audience kind of give us a snapshot of who you are and, and your experience. I know you started in the army and you've you had law enforcement experience to kind of give us that, that uh, kind of the cliff notes of your story. Uh, so I actually started in the army when I was 17, right out of high school. Um, I, I got out of the army just before Saddam had invaded Kuwait. And then I got recalled to active duty, uh, but it was very short lived because that, that operation was open over pretty quickly. And then I got out again, went into law enforcement after finishing college. 
Um, 9-11 happens and then I'm right back in. I decided I wanted to, you know, go take the fight to the enemy, you know, and, and, and get some payback for what happened to us on 9-11. Um, so I go, I'm literally having to go back through basic training all over again in my mid thirties. And I get assigned to Hawaii where I quickly was deployed to Iraq. Uh, so I had the, uh, 17 month, uh, yeah, 15 month deployment. So it was a pretty, pretty lengthy deployment. We lost 18 Americans on that deployment. I was, I was a combat infantryman. Um, you know, we lost 17 Americans, one interpreter is what it was 18 out of the unit. Um, came back after that deployment and went right into drill sergeant duty. And then immediately from drill sergeant duty, I went right to a deploying unit. Um, so in April of 2011, uh, as an instrument, I deployed to Afghanistan with 124 Infantry Battalion. And it was a striker brigade up in uh, Fort Wainwright, Alaska. Um, got to Afghanistan. We were at about 7,500 feet elevation. And uh, during that deployment, uh, half of my squad was medevaced out of country, uh, mostly due to IEDs or indirect fire. And, you know, one of my kids was uh, killed in the deployment and felt extremely responsible for um, for Doug's death. Uh, he was one of the gun crews that was assigned to my squad. And after, as we're getting ready to come to the end of the deployment, I had received a Red Cross notification where my mom had passed away. Um, so I had a you know, I was managing fairly well all the way up until it became personal with my home life. Uh, so with three weeks left in the deployment, I'm back in Florida uh, attending my mom's funeral services. And then I go right back to um, Alaska. And first thing I did was I started self-medicating with alcohol. You know, now I had alcohol accessible and available. Uh, and that's how I actually learned how to sleep again, you know, because um, I myself stepped on a pressure plate, detonated an IED about five, 10 feet away from me. So I had a, a brain injury and just sleep deprived. And um, so alcohol became my go-to. Um, yeah, I kind of sucked it up, you know, and when I got taken off of the line unit and put up into the operations and I kind of got slowed down when it came to the operations tempo of the unit, more, it became more of a, you know, a paperwork, you know, admin kind of a position, man, that's when everything just kind of came full circle um, about 11 and a half months after getting back from Afghanistan, I got to a point where I was sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know, and as a staff sergeant, you know, where do you go for help? You know, that stigma mm -hmm. that we put on, on mental health, you know, I was like, man, I know I'm tougher than this. I mean, I did drill sergeant duty. I did a 15 month deployment to Iraq. I've seen combat. I fought, you know, I've been injured. And now all of a sudden I'm having these nightmares and these, you know, intrusive thoughts and the emotions going crazy. You know, that was the biggest thing was the, the number of different emotions that you experienced in that trauma response. And, and the next thing, you know, I'm sitting there looking at a rifle in a corner of my room in a basement apartment outside mm -hmm. the, the back gate of, of, of Fort Wainwright. That to me, suicide became a better option than asking for help. Mm -hmm. um, whether, whether anything would have happened or not is irrelevant. But in, in my mind at the time, that's, that's kind of where I was. And there was some kids that lived in the apartment above me. And I heard them running across my ceiling as I'm sitting there looking at this rifle. And I'm like, Whoo, whoa, that was a, that's a really bad idea. Yeah. I didn't want to hurt a kid. I didn't want to hurt a, one of their family members. Cause I'm high power rifle is going to go right through the, right through the ceiling. And so I passed out that night, like every other night. And I woke up the next morning to a phone call um, from Ryan, who was one of my soldiers. And he was like, Hey, Sergeant Jarvis, did you hear about Corey? Now that's always a bad, that's a bad question for anybody in the military. Cause mm -hmm. either one, they're in jail or, or two, they're dead. And I'm like, nobody would happen. He said, Corey shot and killed himself last night. Mm -hmm. So that was like very impactful. Uh, cause I remember looking at that rifle and I just kind of buried my head in my hands. I'm like, nobody had a clue that he was struggling, you know? And then I realized nobody had a clue that I was struggling. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, isn't that often a thing where whether you're a first responder or you're in the military and you're struggling, it's a silent struggle, right? You feel absolutely alone. There's a gentleman I worked with um, who was a in, former infantry officer and, and he said something profound. He, he was like, I can be in the middle of Walmart packed and still feel like I'm alone. That's the, the fight or flight part of post-traumatic stress. You just isolated from the world and you're alone. Um, so I always say that Corey saved my life. Unfortunately, it's when he took his own. Um, so I, that to me, I couldn't get permission to my guys to do that. So I continue to fight and push through it. 
I still self-medicated with alcohol and I had had a couple surgeries after returning and I got caught up in the 2014 drawdown. And that's when the army said, Hey, you know, we need your position. It's time for you to retire. We need it for somebody healthy. And I get that. I mean, I do understand that um, because I was not an effective instrument after both shoulders and my left knee. So, you know, took that uniform off and I transitioned out, uh, which had its own set of unique challenges. Um, mm-hmm. But then I just traded one uniform for another and I went right back into law enforcement. Mm-hmm. I was, I was very, um, one of my wounded warriors, his dad was the elected sheriff of Seminole County, Florida. Uh, and when I, when all the the wounded warriors came back after our deployment, I was his chaperone. So we built a friendship and a relationship and he says, Hey Danny, why don't you come back into law enforcement? And I hadn't even thought about that at the mm-hmm. time. I was like, I was getting, well, now what? So then I actually did. I said, all right, let's do this. And I got back into, um, law enforcement agency in central Florida. And when I put that uniform back on and I'm actually on the road, something weird happened. Mm. I felt normal again. Wow. Because now I was no longer a fish out of water. My brain Mm. was operating fight or flight. I mean, as the Mm. nature of the profession of that job, you're fight or flight 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I felt normal for a while. Um, Answering calls, getting into foot pursuits, motor vehicle pursuits, you know, you name it. Um, we were doing it, drug cases, you know, all kinds of stuff. I worked a, a crime suppression team. So I worked the street crime. So I, mm. you know, for a good year, a little over a year and a half, I'm just basically doing proactive policing. And I, and I was really thriving at that. Um, and then, you know, I had due to some, some of the complications of, you know, back injuries from deployments. Uh, I had something called spinal stenosis and that's where the bundle of nerves at the base of the, of the spine get compressed. And the duty belt was literally just, um, causing significant pain. And, and I, I didn't want to put anybody else at risk. Um, and then I, my ex-wife and I, we discussed it as well. Maybe it's, it's time to, you know, I got vested in the Florida retirement system. You know, let me, let me, uh, let me hang up the uniform and whoo, man, that's when everything just went, mm. went sideways all over again, because once that honeydew list got completed, um, the idle mind truly is the devil's playground. That's why so many, we don't even track veteran first responders, you know, first responders that retire mm-hmm. or leave the profession. I would, I would put money on it that it's the suicide rates there is, is significant. Um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the army or military army, Navy, air force, Marines, it's veterans that's on average 22 a day. Mm-hmm. I would imagine it's probably the same, uh, if not more, because there's more, um, law enforcement and, and firefighters. Right. But, so at what point did you, decide to get help for yourself and how did that look? Well, to be honest, it wasn't because of me. It was because of my ex-wife and you know, she didn't, she wasn't, we were married while I was in the military. We got married after military and she never experienced that part of me. So she didn't even know about what I did or saw on deployments. And she was like, you're having nightmares. You're, you're soaking the sheets every night. You know, you're sweating, you know, it really kind of freaked her out and she didn't know how to handle it. So she asked me to go get help. Um, and I was like, you know what, I'm not a cop anymore. I'm, I don't have a security clearance to worry about on active duty. I'll just go to the VA. And I did, I went to the VA and, um, you know, there was, Hey, here's take some pills. Mm. That's your first step. You know, then it was talk. Is that there. always like the first response from if you have help? any, if you show any symptoms of depression, which PTS normally accompanies because sure you know, you're, you're not sleeping and you're, you're mm-hmm. drained and your body is just worn down. Um, so that's pretty much the first protocol is take some, some medication. And so I did, I started taking the medication and then talk therapy was just, you know, not for me. It was like, literally, Hey, uh, talk about the event from point A to point B, you know, like for me, it was when we lost mm-hmm. Doug. So I had to literally talk, literally relive all of the details of, that entire mission from leaving the wire to pulling the striker, dragging it along the main route all the way back in and the medevacs. And so you start feeling the physiology of all of those emotions start bombarding you. And, and, and my ex-wife was like, you're getting worse, you know? And I'm like, I'm just, you don't know what to do with those emotions, right? I know. Right. You're, you're in there for an hour. You, you open that tourniquet up and you, those emotions that we do a really good job bottling up and boxing up, and putting away is just exposed. And then they give you homework assignment. They call in vivo exposure. Like, well, sit in your office and listen to taps for an hour every day. 
Mm. You know, if you've been to a, a military memorial service in combat, you know, and you listen to taps, I mean, it is excruciatingly emotional. Mm-hmm. And so that was like what their expectations were. And, um, and this was a, this was a VA counselor or a VA, VA, a VA psychologist. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the therapy treatment was prolonged exposure. Um, right now that's what the VA considers their best evidence-based treatment for PTSD. Mm-hmm. And all they're trying to do is get you numb to the events. So, um, the second, third session, I, I get ready to go and they called and they canceled an appointment and I'm like, okay, well, when can I get back in? And so, well, the doctor doesn't have an availability for four weeks. Oh my goodness. So I'm like four weeks. Oh, wow. Well, I got four weeks come and go. You're left with everything exposed. Mm-hmm. And then I go to a, another appointment and same thing. It's t- talk therapy. The same, you're doing 12 weeks on the same traumatic incident. Wow. And and you're literally exposing all those emotions. And, uh, and then I had to go again for another appointment and they called to cancel that appointment. And I'm like, okay, well now how long is it going to take me to, to get in to see the doctor? Well, he doesn't have any time on a schedule for eight weeks. Hmm. And I'm like, so it's a 12 week pro- process. I had a four week break and I'm gonna have an eight week break and then I'll be halfway through with this. And I got more than one thing I need to work on, mm. you know, and that yeah. was the end. That was the end of my VA experience. Um, I kind of decided at that time I was going to look for alternatives outside of the VA and just kind of went on a journey to try to find a better way. And mm. um, yeah, that was and my, my ex realized I wasn't doing therapy anymore. And I'm like, and I explained to her what happened. And she's like, well, we got to, we got to do something else. So I started looking for alternative treatments, you know, maybe things that aren't necessarily, um, common practices or got, I mean, in 2021 or that time it's 2018 or 17, there's gotta be a better way to, to do this than what they're doing. And that journey is probably the most rewarding journey I've ever been on. Um, I learned a lot. Um, I learned more about mental health than, uh, this grunt infantryman probably should know. Um, but it led us to some real world solutions for PTSD. And now I tell everybody, PTSD is a hundred percent healable, a hundred percent, you know, and people are, how do you do that? You know, I'm, I'm telling you the research that's out there right now, you can fix PTS hands down, full stop, a hundred percent of the time. Mm. And well, well, I want to learn a little bit more about what, uh, what some of those solutions are that you discovered. Uh, but first is for everyone that's coming in. If you uh, thank you for joining us tonight, we're talking with Dan Jarvis here on PTSD 911 presents. And if you have a question for, for Dan at some point, just put it in the, in the chat and we'll get to those as soon as we can. So uh, Dan, so what are some of the things that you learned in your process it, and the things that worked for you and how did that transition into you now serving others? So when I started going down that the rabbit hole of, of looking for solutions, I literally, um, w- my wife or my ex-wife had brought a gentleman in to do some training at the sheriff's office. She was the civilian administrator and he's a retired uh, army colonel or lieutenant colonel of Green Beret. And we got, to, we got to talk and he invited me to come to a men's leadership retreat in Tampa, Florida. And I met some really awesome people. And that was April of 2018. And um, they had a psychologist there. And then there was another Air Force veteran who was doing some fundraising for an organization that was doing some really new groundbreaking research on PTSD. And that was the weekend I, you know, I, I decided, you know, 220 is what I wanted to do. Um, and for me, 220 has a dual meeting. 22 veterans is average what we're losing. The goal is to take it to zero. Um, but as a law enforcement officer, the signals and codes, uh, signal 220 is an armed uh, disturbance, which is how most of us first responders and, you know, veterans usually will die by a firearm. And a, about six months later, you know, I had started the nonprofit. I did all the administrative, set up all the paperwork, you know, was trying to find other solutions, uh, ba- ways to connect veterans to um, and first responders to counselors that are into some of these alternative fringes. And then I was invited to attend uh, the first public training in Albuquerque, New Mexico for one of those alternative treatments. And I'm listening to these guys the first day and they're saying the same things that, well, you can heal PTS. And their, their, their statistics were, I think it was like 92 to 96% successful. And I'm, I'm sitting in the back. And meanwhile, I don't really know 
much about this, but I heard that whole first day and day two, we're on a break and I, I went up to one of the trainers. I'm like, you guys are making some pretty bold claims um, because the reality is I've been 27 months in combat as an infantryman. I did seven years in law enforcement, but the worst stuff uh, was when I was 11, you know, and I've been dealing with a lot of trauma for a very long period of my life. And that's what a lot of people don't understand is, you know, a lot of us go through trauma in childhood drives us into those professions mm -hmm. of service to others to help. And um, it's amazing how many first responders I've talked to over the past couple of years. And if you talk to them and, and kind of dig into their background, many of them have some something that triggered yep. them back then that kind of guided their journey into helping others now. Correct. You know, which then, you know, that trauma adds to this trauma and it just just kind of accumulates. I, I would say between 60 and 70% of the first responders we work with have adverse childhood experiences. Mm. They, they have trauma in childhood. Um, so I'm, anyways, I, I, I tell the trainer, I'm like, look, if I'm going to recommend this to a vet or a first responder, I, I, I want to experience this. So he was like, well, you want to, you want to do it in 15 minutes after we come out of break? I'm like, yeah, let's get it over with. Let's do it. Uh, because I'm about to show these uh, mental health counselors. There was like 25 counselors in the room that this guy's full of himself. Um, that was my brain. It was, I was just very untrusting. And, um, but he, he convinced me to sit in the front of the class and he ran me through that process. And I was like, wow, it was profound. I went from um, that process. You talk about the event. It's kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy sandwiched between a visual kinesthetic disassociation followed up with cognitive behavioral therapy. So you talk about the trauma, they see a trigger and they do what's called a break state. They pull you out of the emotions. They reground you and then they set up a visual kinesthetic disassociation process. And my stress level on that event, it was a nine or a 10. So it was like zero is no negative emotions, nine, 10. It's like at the peak. And within about 45 minutes after the rewind part of it, they had me talk about it again. And I was talking about it and I was telling the story and I was waiting for the shoe to drop. I'm like, where's the emotions? Cause 45 minutes ago, I got extremely emotional in front of a classroom of mental health counselors. And now I'm not having any emotion attached to this. And it was the really most bizarre thing. Um, and, and it was one 45 minute session was able to disconnect neurologically the trauma that's connected from that event to the emotions. So the event didn't change. None of the details changed, but the emotions were no longer attached to it. And mm -hmm. then all of a sudden, then you're sleeping then the sleep restores. And I'm like, why is this not everywhere? Mm -hmm. you know, that how, how, after you had all this stuff that's kept you from sleeping and all this, the stuff that's related to that. And now you're free from that. How does that feel? Well, it was profound when the sleep patterns reset. Mm. In other words, I would go from sleeping a couple hours a night, night sweats, night terrors to eight, nine hours. And it was just like, I felt rejuvenated, regenerated. Re I mean, literally, it was like resetting the, the nervous system is how it felt. And then over time, you know, as the more sleep you go through, the better you get. And when I ended up going back to Florida after that training event, there was a counselor at that training from Orlando. So I, I called her up and says, I want two weeks on your schedule because I got a lot of stuff. And now I'm like, I'm excited because I see a, the light at the end of the tunnel is turned back on. I'm like, I see hope. And it was kind of funny because we did, I think we did like three sessions. And mind you, I, I, I scheduled 10 days with her Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, because you have to have sleep cycles between all of the sessions. Mm -hmm. And after like the third session with her, I'm like, Cindy, I'm sorry. I don't have anything left, you know? <laughs> so I had to cancel the rest of my appointments. And then I'm like, how do I, we have the nonprofit. We did a lot of fundraising and we started focusing, you know, on that specific treatment. So we started doing paying for counselors to get trained and, you know, um, and predominantly mostly we were, we were sponsoring in Florida and, even down at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas down in Coral Springs, Florida, we did a training ahead of the year anniversary of the shooting from um, Valentine's day. So we got, we funded a bunch of counselors down there getting trained and, and you know, then COVID hits mm. and COVID was probably one of the best things that happened to us as an organization mm. because it allowed us to shift 
lift and shift fire, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, money dried up. We weren't getting the funds to to sponsor counselors. But then we're like, well, how do we do this in a way that we can continue moving forward? So we did is, you know, and I had done a lot of other trainings and um, the the body of work that we're talking about isn't new science. This is stuff that's been around for a hot minute. So um, something called neuro-linguistic programming. So neuro-linguistic programming was put together in the early 1980s with uh, Dr. John Grinder and Dr. Richard Bandler. So they basically... Um, you know, we, they say we stand on the shoulders of giants. They went back to Virginia Satir, Milton, uh, Fritz Perls, Milton Erickson, some of the pioneers of mental health and psychology and counseling. And they took the best of what those individuals were doing in the 40s or 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And they grouped it all into that body of work called NLP. And the, the treatment that we started using was designed as a phobia cure for like frogs and heights and things like that. And we did is we just adapted it to suit our needs. And um, being that we're a peer support organization, we're like getting into the details is extremely difficult. Um, having to listen to people share their trauma is it's, it's hard on the person and it's hard on us. Mm-hmm. So we're like, you know what? The, the, the research shows when the trigger happens, there's a four to six hour window that you can reset the state of emotions attached to that memory. So in other words, we have you think about an event, it triggers you. We, we assess the zero to 10 where they're feeling, how it feels presently, you know, all those emotions. And we're seeing eights, nines and tens drop to zeros and ones in an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, people that are extremely visual. I think the, the fastest I've done was about 10 minutes um, where you literally neurologically disconnect the emotion attached to the traumatic event. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, we had a group of uh, licensed counselors that were working with us. And we had a clinical psychologist who was retired from the VA. Um, she retired from the VA because they would not allow her to use the alternative treatments. Mm. I met her down at Coral Springs. She's, she's from Miami area. And we sponsored her to get trained in the reconsolidation of traumatic memories protocol. And they would not allow her to use it. Wow. They, they forbid her from using an alternative treatment. Wow. And you know, that's another reason it's like the VA, they're, they're so stuck in their ways and they're so scared of being irrelevant. You know, mm-hmm. we want to be irrelevant. 220 does not want to exist. I want to go out mm-hmm. of business. That's my yeah. number one goal is to go out. So of let business. me ask you this when, so you're retired, you're not going back into the field and experiencing more trauma for that, for those who are, who are those who are firefighters or whatever first responder agency they work with, they go through this training and now they're going back to the field and they're involved in another shooting. They go to another suicide. They, they, all these things that have happened in the past. How does that? Yeah. So the, that's a great question, Conrad. So when you're dealing with first responders, it's typically an accumulation of trauma. You know, they might go, you might have 150 traumatic events in your career that you're personally exposed to. Mm-hmm. You know, let that sink in. You know, yeah. we're having our 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 fire responders, police, fire, EMS going into Trump traumatic events regularly mm-hmm. as a matter of profession. And so two of the agencies that we've trained in Florida, one is the Lake County Sheriff's Office and the other is the Sumter County Sheriff's Office. And I always like in trauma, I, I use a cup. Right. So say you have a cup and it's just full of emotions and trauma. When you empty the cup, it's it may fill up over time. Mm-hmm. But the, the reality is when you give the brain the ability to reset and get into REM sleep again, the brain is designed to heal itself. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. those emotions are supposed to end up being processed out and move to different components of the brain. That's called memory reconsolidation. That's what we were designed to do. We hit REM sleep, REM sleep moves the emotions out of your amygdala and then into the hippocampus. So your emotions will go into the hippocampal region and the memories will go into the cerebellum, you know, the long-term memory. Um, and what they're doing with the peer support team is once we train them, we have to go through all of their trauma history and they work on real world events. Um, and which is the beauty of it, because in order to get trained to be, you know, a peer support, you have to go through the protocols. Mm-hmm. And, and then it's just a matter of if you're exposed to another traumatic event, you know, and if a couple of days later, you're still feeling the, the symptoms, the, the stress levels. You can disconnect those um, 
neurological connections between those emotions and those events. Um, you could do it within hours. You don't even have to wait days. So you have the training to be able to manage that right. when those new traumas come. Yep. So yeah. Lake County Sheriff's Office had a young deputy who was involved with the shooting. Uh, very, I mean, it's not a normal thing to kill somebody or to shoot sure. to shoot somebody. So he was pretty, uh, pretty worked up. And the next day they brought him in and ran him through the process and allowed him those three days he's off to just relax with his family without those trauma uh, re- mm-hmm. responses. And and it's just, it allows for a healthier, um, more well officer or for mm-hmm. a firefighter, mm-hmm. you know? So we have a question, uh, says, can you talk about the difference between this treatment and EMDR? Yes, it works. It works. It works. <laughs> I'm not saying anything about EMDR. EMDR is good for a lot of people and, and mm-hmm. they're the research. I've heard a lot of good things about it. A lot of people yeah. I've talked to. Right. For, for a 40 maybe 35, 40% of the people that go through EMDR, they have really good results. Um, but if you're the other 60 to 65%, um, you're still struggling. I went through EMDR. EMDR, um, for me, I was literally all over the place. EMDR, you're using, and EMDR is also rooted in neuro-linguistic programming. Right. That, that's mm-hmm. also based in that NLP world. And, and what you're doing is you're, you're provoking the emotions and then you're using eye movements um, and sometimes they'll put the the vibrating balls that'll like go mm-hmm. between. So it gets your brain, you know, going into both sides of the, both hemispheres of the brain. And, and that's, it's eye movement. Um, re, I Desensis- desensitization. Reprocessing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and that's also, there's another, you know, treatment now called accelerator resolution therapy, ART, which is also, it's almost identical to the EMDR. Um, out, they're all rooted in, in the NLP world. Um, so, the, the, well, the difference is that the trauma resiliency protocol, you provoke the emotion, you have the triggers, and all you're having them do is thinking about it. And then you're creating bookends to the specific event. And what that is, is it's a, it's a still picture in your mind. You're making a visual snapshot, like a little freeze frame. And then you're draining the color out of those events. So you have a, an image that's black and white before the trauma occurred. So for me, we're, we're having a ramp brief. We're getting ready to go outside the wire when we lose Doug. And then we're back inside the wire um, cleaning weapons. I'm safe before, I'm safe after. The traumatic event occurs between that three-hour window. And then you're watching yourself watching a disassociated movie. So um, a best example is you have them imagine, you know, the room they watch their TV in. Like maybe they're in their living room. And they take that first still picture, that first freeze frame, and they put it up on that television. 65 inch TV, whatever it is. And then you move them to a, an observer position in the room and they're looking back and I'm looking back. So I'm watching Dan on the couch. Dan on the couch is watching the traumatic event from bookend to bookend Mm -hmm. in about 30 seconds, 30 to 45 seconds. And I have to see how Dan is reacting to the movie because that's Dan on the, on the couch is the subconscious. Mm -hmm. He's watching the event from beginning to end and you got to keep them out of the events. So you don't want them reassociating into it. So you want to make sure they understand the visualizations before you put them in that position. And when you get them comfortable and relaxed, you'll associate them into the very end of that movie. And you'll do a rapid rewind from doing weapons maintenance on the fob rapidly to the beginning, the ramp brief, and you're going from black and white to color. And what's happening is you're working at the root at that point. You're, do, you're doing subconscious, which EMDR is also doing subconscious. Mm-hmm. You're, you're putting a beginning to the event. You're putting an end to the event. So that's the subconscious brain is like, oh, there's a beginning and there's an end. And the black and white imagery is it's an old movie. Mm-hmm. And then when you do the rewind and it reverses the order of the events, that's when the amygdala is like, wait a minute, we're ending at the ramp brief. Nothing bad happened. And the brain at that point cannot attach that emotion and it splits the emotion out of it. So say you get them to like a two or a three on the stress level. And then all you got to do is take them to the, you know, the birth of a child or wedding day. You have them associated into a positive memory where they can feel the emotions of the positive memory. And that's layering over the traumatic memory. So now they're no longer feeling the trauma emotion when they recall that memory, they're feeling the positive emotion. Remembering the bad stuff, but feeling the good stuff. And that kicks off that process of memory reconsolidation where now all of a sudden you're sleeping again and, you know, your cortisol levels go back to normal. Your adrenal fatigue diminishes and you're happy because you're not, you're not up 24 hours a day. 
So when you're working with or when a, when a counselor a therapist is working with someone, you know, big, tough SWAT officer, what, what, I mean, I mean, some of this to, to an outsider may sound real kind of woo woo. Mm-hmm. What's a SWAT officer or some big, tough guy that, uh, you know, he, he comes in and what, what's their response to something like this? So I'll give you a prime example. I won't say which agency, but one of the departments that we trained in Florida, we trained 13 of their deputies. 10 of them would have qualified for a clinical diagnosis of PTSD. Wow. And they were working every single day. That's the amount of stress they're under. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the beauty is when you actually go through the training part and they feel it, it it's a release. You know, mm-hmm. um, we had a Marine in Sumford County who was a deputy for nine years and was in um, Operation Phantom Fury in Fallujah. So uh, did a lot of combat as a Marine in Iraq. Uh, he had tons of trauma. And when you, you see the, the, the way that his demeanor changed and his body changed, his physiology changed, you know, and now he no longer has PTSD. You know, he had it, he knew he had it. He was diagnosed by the VA as having it. And now he doesn't have those emotions anymore. The key is the rapport. All right. The only thing I got to do for that SWAT officer is have him trust me enough to do the process. Mm. That's it. Uh, Because you don't have to believe the process is going to work. You just got to do the visualizations. Your brain does it automatically. You can't stop it. And that's the remarkable part about it. So um, training SWAT officers to do this is critical because a SWAT officer will sit down with another SWAT officer mm-hmm. and they trust them. You know, I just share my story with anybody I work with. I'll, I'll tell my story and where I was and they're automatically connected. And then mm-hmm. next thing you know, they're running the process and then they're like, what just happened? You know, I love it because I'll see them yawning on the, uh, after they do a session and that's the, that's when the amygdala just shuts off and they go parasympathetic and, and I'll sit there and be like, got them, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because I know that their whole world's about to change. Yeah. Um, we have a comment from, from Renee. She said that, you know, counselors need training them themselves. So they're not traumatized from the stories that they, that the, they hear. That's the biggest thing with, uh, the, the, it's called vicarious trauma, you know, cause mm-hmm. I've heard some stories that I wish I could unhear. It's like, you know, that's why I was so grateful when we developed ours, we left out all of the content. So we won't mm-hmm. let them talk about their trauma before or after, you know, all we're doing is they're firing that trigger. They're getting triggered. We're setting up the bookends. We're running the disassociated movie. We are doing the rewind. We're resetting the emotion. And then we're checking the seds afterwards. You know, and, and when you see them go from a 10 to a zero, you see it more than just them telling you, you, you literally see the physiological, the changes, you know, sometimes their color comes back on their face, but we don't have to listen to the trauma uh, because I've, I've done some sessions with people that were civilians that had more, had worse trauma than I had, could have ever even imagined on the battlefield, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the remarkable, yes, definitely uh, therapists um, and a lot of therapists do the same thing. They get into those professions because they want to help people because of their own, their own trauma. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I, I don't mean to pick on therapists. I've just, my experience, it's just not been a pleasant one. Yeah. So I have another question from Renee and I don't know what these three letter acronyms stand for. Maybe you do. Have you ever used TFT or EFT alone or with the NLP? So we do, most of the things that we do is, is heavy into the NLP. Um, Cause we do another process called emotions management. And, you know, that's more of a framing exercise. So TFT and EFT, no, we don't, we don't do that. Um, but, but the, the framing is extremely powerful. Um, cause I started like, well, if you can provoke a trigger and reset an emotion on a trauma response, can you do the same thing with somebody with anger problems? So what we'll do is we'll take them to an event where they can still feel that anger and we'll provoke that triggered response and then do a disconnect. So we'll disassociate them from that memory um, I, I use, I'm a military guy. So I use military languages. Have you ever seen video from a drone as you're looking down into that event where that anger was established, go straight up so fast. It gets so far away from you. You can't feel it anymore. And they'll do that. And it's almost like you're guiding the brain to do that. And when they get that disconnect, all you have them do is objectively look at what happened. Um, because the majority of the folks, probably 70% establish those negative emotions like anger issues when they're like five, six, seven years old. And you allow them to reframe those early memories um, with today's understanding and learning of events. And they'll literally release the emotions. And that's the really cool part is 
Because when you get them to a five-year-old event, and maybe that's the first time that they had an anger reaction, uh, because that's the trigger. They're defaulting to childhood or, uh, you know, or a, a call one year on the force and they're, you know, 19 years in and all of a sudden they're, they're triggering. And when you can get those, those reframes, you'll see them release it. And that de-escalates the, the person uh, because they're no longer going to default to that five-year-old trigger. Mm. Um, so it's a very powerful way of reframing and releasing negative emotions, even with like anxiety, you can cure anxiety too. Um, people have like panic attacks or anxiety issues. All you do is find the root and then you do the reframes on the root after you provoke the emotion and disconnect it. And, you know, I've worked with, I had a former firefighter who six, seven panic attacks every single day. Um, and we did the EMP process, but that was about a 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, and for him, he was a very faith-based individual. So I'm like, Hmm, Ryan, what's the Bible say about fear? And boom, he started spitting chapter and verse and he, his eyes got really big because he felt the shift internally. And he goes, you just did that voodoo stuff right there. I said, no, no, you <laughs> framed it in a way that made sense because the brain has got what's called the make sense mandate. That's why so many people are taken out of context. They'll say something that doesn't make sense. And then their filters will interpret it and make sense of it. And a lot of times you're left with the wrong interpretation of what actually happened. So that EMP process, um, that's what we, we use EMP and, and the trauma resiliency. Mm. That's, that's kind of what we do. I hope that answered your question. What does this do for you? I mean, oh. what, I mean, just having this kind of being able to help others, what, what does it do for you? So Victor Frankel, right? He's yeah. got something, he developed something, logos therapy, just the ability to help other people. This is better than any antidepressant on the planet. Because when you have somebody who's got PTS really, really bad and you can walk them through a process and watch them let it go and change their whole future, I mean, because we've worked with veterans who were absolutely suicidal and then we helped them on their healing journey and, and they got married and had had a family, you know, mm. changing family trees, extremely gratifying. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, I'm trying to change culture in the law enforcement world. That's what I really want to make um, a big impact. We're we've already treated probably we're we're over thirty eight hundred people that we've worked with um, and just to be able to give people their lives back and putting them back on that that path of that purpose that they're, that they're really needing to pursue or, or the person that they're supposed to be is extremely uh, reward. I mean, I had a gentleman who called me, um, we had a suicide in our battalion May of this year. So I put out a video, a Facebook video to a closed Facebook group for, you know, the guys from the elite one, two, four infantry. And this guy calls me up and he's like, I'm sitting here with a, a bottle of Tito's in one hand and a 45 in the neck and the other. And I'm trying to figure out which one to go to. And I'm like, brother, put the 45 away, finish the Tito's. You know, if you're going to do one of those two, go with the Tito's. Hmm. And I, and then he, you know, we, we built some more rapport because I knew his entire story. Um, and he asked me if I would run it. I says, I will, but I need you sober. And he was like, dude, I haven't been sober in 10 years. Hmm. And that's wow. his role that he's been in. I said, I need you to promise me. You'll call me when you get off work, before you go to work, you're on lunch hour. Well, you don't have alcohol in your system because I need you to be able to do some things and let your brain do some things. And he scored out 76 out of 80 points. And I said, we're doing, we've got two hours. You and I are, we're going to work for two hours. And we neurologically disconnected three traumas in his life. One from childhood, two from combat. And then we went through all the negative emotions, anger, sadness, fear, shame, hurt, survivor guilt. And we had him release all of those and his whole world's changed and he doesn't um, no longer has the same, you know, lifestyle. Mm -hmm. you know, he's actually able to be present with his kids. Mm -hmm. You know, he had already lost his marriage, which is common, mm -hmm. but, sure. but he's now present with his kids um, and present with the rest of his family. And that's extremely rewarding because that guy that scoring that high, means seven days a week suck for him. Mm -hmm. um, so he would have been a statistic eventually. Mm -hmm. so, and that's, probably reasons why we see stories end up on the eating news. Yes. Bad decisions, bad decisions. Yeah. And well, it's uh, not, not necessarily because they're just a bad person. It's because they haven't dealt with all the traumas that they've experienced over the years. There, there's a judge down in Miami who I had a really long conversation with, and he's trying to change um, mental health in the criminal justice system. Cause statistically that's where most of them get their first mental mm -hmm. health is actually in, in jail. Mm -hmm. And he told me that 97% of women that are incarcerated 
were sexually assaulted before they ever entered the criminal justice system. 97%. 97% and 78% of the men. Wow. It's trauma. They make really poor decisions. Self-medication, drugs, alcohol, next thing you know, emotions got them doing things that they have, they're out of control. They literally Mm -hmm. lost control. Wow. That's a, uh, it's a really, that's a really sad statistic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, first responders are not immune to all those traumas, right? I mean, all of us are human. No, I knew a lot of deputies who would do 160 hours a month working and then they do another 40 hours a month doing off duty work. Mm -hmm. Where's your rest? You're never letting your brain process firefighters, first responders, you're working 24, 48. So you're sleep deprived that 24 hours that you're working. And then you can't even catch up because sleep loss is accumulative. You can't make it up. Yeah. And then I got to sleep. So bottle of Jim Beam or, you Mm -hmm. know, Jack Jack and Coke, you know, and then they're not. And and these days with, you know, fewer people in these professions and people leaving like, you know, like crazy, there's mandatory overtime. So not only I heard of one agency and I forget where it was I'm in the Carolina, someplace where a fire company went from 2448 to 4824. Holy, could you imagine that? Right. And then I we mean, wonder why they're having problems. Yeah, exactly. Man, that's crazy. That was one of the big draws for one of the agencies that we worked with is they were, they were resigning left and right. They were having a hard time keeping, and that's law enforcement across the nation. Right. Yeah. They're having a hard time you know, retaining, you know, you lose a, a deputy sheriff with 10 years of experience. Guess what? You have to wait 10 years to train somebody else to get that institutional knowledge back. Yeah. So yeah. when you're able to reset those emotions and then you're seeing the officers like happy to be a cop again, they remember why they got into it in the first place because now they're no longer burdened by those emotions. You know, just one resignation, what is, you know, probably a hundred grand to train a new police officer or more. Yeah. 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 Well, I want to get into how we can get in touch with you in just a minute, but for, for everyone who's here, just to let you know that, um, this, this program is brought to you by PTSD 911 documentary, and we are passionate about making a difference for first responders. And that's what we're going to do with this film. So we're doing with this program and we're going to continue to bring you, uh, free programs like this on a monthly basis, twice a month. And we got a really exciting one coming up later this month and I'm going to pull their little graphic up here so you can see who this is going to be. We're going to have that peer support couple on, on January 26th. These guys are amazing. I met them a year ago at the national FOP wellness summit. And I think they're going to be there again this year. And so Kathy and Javier Bustos are going to be here live right here on this channel. So be sure to mark that on your calendar. And we got some other amazing people coming up in the next few months uh, as we uh, gear up toward our premiere of our film later this year, October 28th, National First Responder Day is the day when this film will be finished. Pray to God that it happens (laughs) if we can get our funding in place. And so if you want to help us reach that goal, Go to our website, make a make a donation of any amount. We've had some amazing people make donations anywhere from $10,000 to, you know, $20. And so if you want to make a donation there, go to, let me pull this little thing up here so you can see where to go to. Uh, let's see here. Go to PTSD911movie.com. Click on the donate button. Make a small contribution or a big contribution. We'll take all all kinds. But Dan, where can we find you? Where can we find your information? So our website is 220.org. It's just like it looks, 220.org. Um, you can, if you're needing assistance, you can send an email, you can click the, the get help. Uh, you'll, you'll get our case manager. Well, a lot of times people are surprised that typically within you know 12 hours, they're on the phone with somebody and they're getting assigned a coach. Um, and then all of a sudden they're working with somebody. If you're an active law enforcement officer, an active first responder, military, whatever, and you don't want anybody to know that you're, you're seeking help. We, we don't use EAP. We don't use insurance. Uh, the, the treatments are free. Um, it's covered by the nonprofit. You don't have to worry about That's amazing. That's you don't amazing. Have to worry about anybody um, finding out that you even came to us. So go back to work like nothing ever. And that's one of the things that I really wish I would have had as a, as a squad leader in the army 
I could have gone somewhere to get help and nobody in my chain of command would have known. So that's one of the reasons why we set this up. We want to re- remove all barriers from you know, the need. And, and the way we're doing this teleconference right now is all we need. You know, we don't have to be in the same room. So it doesn't matter where in the country you are. We have um, an ample number of people, coaches that can assist you. I just that. noticed here you can search by state. Yeah, that's not up to date. I got to actually update that because we've done quite a few since then. But uh, okay. typically they come, the emails come into me and then we, we have our case manager do the assessment and we place them with somebody. Um, if you really want to experience or see what it is we do on the front page there, you see Healing the Heroes of 9-11 is a documentary that we put out. Um, it came out 9-11 of this year. And we took five first responders, four from Ground Zero in New York City and one from the Pentagon, who've all been struggling for 20 years with PTSD and different different aspects. We've got EMS, we've got firefighter, you know, we got a Marine that's in there. We even got a chaplain who's in there. Um, you know, when you see, you know, trauma, how it affects so many different people, but all of those individuals are healthy now. And then there's some of the uh, law enforcement officers at the very end, you'll see um, that we've worked with and, you know, please just reach out, get help at 220.org. The email will come directly to me. We'll have you assigned a coach. Um, you can get the get help now button on the website, or you can even call me on my mobile number. I'll give it out over the air. It's 863-221-6304. Hey, uh, Dan, uh, Don wants to know, how do we bring this type of training therapy assistance to Pittsburgh? Uh, get me in touch with the right individual. I'll have a conversation with somebody. Typically what I like to do is, have them send somebody to us that's been struggling and we show them, you know, not with our people, but with theirs. Um, And then it's just a matter of the training actually can be done remotely. It doesn't have to be in person. I would prefer with law enforcement to be in the room with them um, because we got Dr. Phil Bequee. He does what he calls his stuff, his uh, methods, presiliency. So he works with all the stuff left of bang. And then we come in and do our training and then that's the right of bang. So we work with the bounce back after the trauma. He works with trying to build resiliency so you don't get to the trauma. And you would get both of us to come up there. It would be about a, it would be a three day uh, training. So you just have to be in touch with your training folks um, because in Florida, what they're using it under is de-escalation training. And just because you're de-escalating by eliminating the triggers that's causing officers to escalate really, really quickly. So someone asked about the, the phone number again. I think that's the right one. Is that the correct that's number? That's the correct one. That's my mobile number. There you go. Well, thank you for offering that. And uh, if you are out there needing help, don't sit there alone. I reach out for some help and get the help that you need to, uh, to be well. Absolutely. Uh, not only for if you're a first responder, uh, but for your life after first responder, after your first responder job. I think that's, uh, that's an important place, you know, it's important to be healthy while you're on the job, but it's even yeah. just as important to be healthy after, after work. Right? No, absolutely. And here's another caveat. We'll work with the entire family. So if your spouse, trust me, if, if you're a police officer and you're struggling, your spouse is struggling, your kids are struggling. So we'll work with the entire family unit. Um, and again, there's no cost associated with that. And that to me is, is really amazing that uh, you have supporters who support you to be able to provide this at, at no cost. That's, that's, that's fantastic. So, well, Dan, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for uh, your work. Thank you for your willingness to come on the program tonight and talk about what you guys do. I think just from the comments that we're getting, it, uh, people really got a lot out of this and uh, hopefully that uh, you can be able to help more and more people in the work that you do and make a difference for first responders and veterans alike. So thank you for what you do. Thank you, Conrad. Appreciate it. And thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. This has been a conversation about uh, wellness and some solutions for people struggling with uh, the, the traumas that they have dealt with. And so thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for being a part of our community. If you haven't subscribed to our YouTube channel, please subscribe so you get all those messages and when, when these programs come. And uh, also, if you want to follow us on our social sites, please do that. PTSD 911 movie is we're on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. Yes, TikTok as well. So join us there and uh, we'll be back on January 26th with that peer support couple. Thank you for watching tonight. Be well wherever you are. And if you are needing help, don't sit there alone. Reach out, ask for help. 
and uh, you will find that there are people who want to help you. So thank you for watching, everybody. This has been PTSD 911 Presents. My name is Conrad Weaver, and until next time, be well. <laughs>